This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Hello, and welcome to The Speech Link, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Shara Beauchart, speech-language pathologist, and I invite you to join us as we share practical strategies to take your therapy to the next level. We'll talk with experienced experts who have achieved extraordinary results and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Sometimes we might misread what a child says and determine the child's behavior as willful. But we know that sometimes what a child says and does isn't deliberate and willful. It's because of their inadequate delayed language abilities. They're just not grasping language and understanding and expressing as they should be for their age. Today we'll hear from a speech-language pathologist expert, in language. Specifically, she'll explain and give us strategies as to how to improve young children's vocabulary, which is the core of language. She'll start with the importance of basic concepts as the foundation to language, such as spatial concepts, shapes, locations, and basic nouns, and then how vocabulary storage or learning and retrieval abilities are super critical to the child's communication. She'll even tell us how many exposures are needed for a child to be able to fully use and apply a vocabulary word. Very interesting, very needed, and very useful. Let's get started. today is Margot Kinzer Corder, and she's a consummate speech-language pathologist, and I'm proud to call her my friend. We've done several conferences together. Now, she began her career in inpatient pediatric rehabilitation. From there, she moved to an outpatient clinic that specialized in language-based learning disabilities. Her medical and educational background of language and language disorders has provided the foundation of her 30-year career as a speech-language pathologist. And she continues to do therapy and currently owns and is the lead speech-language pathologist at Quarter Communications, a private practice in Indianapolis, Indiana, and provides school and clinic-based services. She's the author of Here's How Children Learn Speech and Language, a text on different learning strategies published by Plural Publishing, as well as Finding Academic Success, and phonemic and phonological awareness through visual phonics. Both of those are self-published books. All are available on her website, quartercommunications.com. 
Margo is board certified, an international presenter, and, and a consultant on language disorders. She is the 2013 recipient of the Nancy McKinley Leadership and Mentoring Award from OSpeak, an Ohio organization dedicated to school speech pathologists and educational audiologists. And she received the 2016 Distinguished Teaching and Outstanding Contribution to the Education Profession Award from the Bureau of Education and Research. Margo, you are highly recognized and lauded and rightly so, my friend. Welcome to the speech link. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here with you. Now, you are going to speak with us today about dynamic ways to increase vocabulary storage and retrieval from basic concepts to academic success. <laughs> wow, that is what we all want for our language kids. Now, we have some terms here, vocabulary storage, retrieval, even word finding issues. And I'm sure that there are similarities and differences um, and, and maybe even uh, differences that may affect what I do in therapy. But let's begin by laying our semantic base that we're going to be doing over the next 50 minutes together. Let's begin with the meaning of vocabulary storage, if you would. Thank you, Char. So what we're going to talk about today is as we look at vocabulary, there's really two pieces for our students. One is they have to be able to learn the vocabulary uh, that we're trying to talk teach them. And we're going to frame that out today in re looking at Beck, McCowan, and Kukin's work and their three tiers of vocabulary. Okay. From there, we will look at some of Dr. Diane Gurman's work. Uh, in regard to that retrieval. And today for our discussion, we're going to use the terms word finding and word retrieval um, interchangeably because it really is once that vocabulary is stored, how can our students quickly and accurately pull that information back out? Okay, great. So um, I know that Beck's, and I call it Beck's book, um, you know, has been around since, you know, the early 2000s, 2002 or something like that. And I know there's a second edition and so on. And mm -hmm. many speech language pathologists have heard of it, but I'm just not sure that everybody has. Would you kind of go over some of that for me? I sure will. When we are looking at vocabulary information, what Beth McCowan and Coogan did for us, and you're right, Char, that was in 2002, um, what they really did was they took, boy, all of those words that we have and looked at how those words could be divided up into basic categories. So as we look at the young children that we work with, so our preschoolers, uh, for many of the students that we serve as speech-language pathologists, that tier one will also start creeping into kindergarten, first, second grade. So it really is all those basic concepts that we work on, in addition to um, those dolce and fry words, those high-frequency words. And then tier two, start separating out that uh, vocabulary that our students are overhearing, even as young children, in regard to conversations that they're having with their parents, uh, words that they're hearing while being read to. And then it goes into those words that our teachers are using in class and that we also see in our state standards, such as explain, describe. And so that's what Beck McCown and Coogan refer to as tier two. Okay. And then when we get to tier Three, what we're really looking at is for our students, really that curriculum-based vocabulary. Uh, we also know that's the lingo we use in our field. Those are words of technology. Um, and so all three of these tiers are so important for what our students need for their academic success. 
Okay. Now, I know, and I, I have a little, you know, um, sentence here in front of me. It says, for young children, basic concept knowledge is needed to then move ahead with high-frequency words and curriculum-based instruction. Okay, so are you saying that in the lower grades, preschool lower grades, that we need to address our basic concept knowledge and then kids need to have that foundation before they move into high frequency words and curriculum based instruction or can all of this be done concurrently? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's almost impossible to avoid tier two words while we're also working on tier one words because these are going to be words that children hear their parents use. That's ridiculous. I'm angry because all of those start fitting into those tier two words. What we also get in there are words that have multiple meanings. So, you know, being able to introduce those words such as bark. Uh, so, you know, a, a, a young child might realize that that's a dog barking, but it's also the bark that's on the outside of a tree. So I think it's impossible to not work on tier two words as we're working on, for us, that basic vocabulary. And as teachers are working on Dolce and Fry words. And I'm going to offer a suggestion as we move through this pod course in regard to how we can support the teachers with those Dolce and Fry words as we continue with our basic concepts and then even moving into some tier two words that have significant meaning for um, our students and then trying to build Dolce and Fry words around that. So we'll talk about that. When we talk tier three vocabulary, that's really, we know that our students at the end of second grade, moving into third grade, there's that big cognitive and language leap that needs to occur because that's when all the curriculum-based vocabulary really starts picking up. That's when science picks up. It's when social studies starts picking up, um, more direct math instruction. So that's really about that third grade mark is where that tier three vocabulary becomes super important to our students. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good to know. And about that time is when their reading skills have become um, very functional and, and they're capable and so on. And, you know, I think about many of my kids that I've had through the years in the schools and thinking of my third graders and fourth graders that are just low to no readers and have low vocabulary knowledge. Um, you know, they, they just have difficulty communicating with other kids, their age and, and sometimes even younger, and they get into scraps and they get into the behavioral issues and so on. And I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, they are missing so much. They didn't catch those, that, the those basic um, foundational words that they needed as preschoolers and early elementary, and they just got left behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're correct. Is that kind of what you're thinking? And um, I, I also know that, you know, when I was in the schools, vocabulary was something really, really important that I stressed to my teachers. Um, how do you do that with the teachers and what can we do to emphasize and how to teach those basic concepts to our young children? And that's a really good point, Sharon. There's a couple of things that you said that I just want to follow up on. You're right. About that third grade mark is where we are moving from learning to read to reading to learn. And so it is such a critical point for students. And as we know, for many of our students with a language disorder or impairment, um, that leap doesn't occur at that point. And then you brought up another point in regard to um, just how it impacts 
friendships and that social pragmatic language. Mm -hmm. Tier two, we could also talk about, and I typically say this kind of for that super linguistic, that meta-linguistic information, that figurative language starts picking up. And so within that figurative language, if a student knows the meaning of a word, and they only know one meaning of the word, and now we're putting it not in a multiple meaning, but in a figurative language context, um, these students think their friends are making fun of them. They get upset because none of those pieces are coming together for them, which is so tricky. And then in regard to your comment in regard to teachers and how we help them with this, um, I always use this scenario of I, I had a kindergarten student and uh, we're going to call her Susie today. I switch her name. It's a real child, but we'll switch okay. her name for today. Okay. And this is her background. So she was a late talker, diagnosed with childhood apraxia of speech. She has an IQ of around 55 to 60. And let's just add that she also has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So absolutely a teacher's dream in the classroom. Or not. And so the teacher comes out and the teacher comes out of the hallway and says, I don't know what I'm gonna do with Susie today. She is not listening to a word I have to say. And so you stop and you say, Well, tell me what's going on. And she said, You know, we're getting ready to go out to recess. And I tell Susie to get in the front of the line. And what does she do? She gets behind Johnny. And then I said, You know what, Susie, just stand next to Sammy. And what does she do? She goes and gets in front of Johnny. She's not listening to a word I have to say. And as her speech-language pathologist, you know that she doesn't have those basic concepts for those prepositions. So because of all of her diagnoses that this little wonderful girl is wrapped up in, it looks to the teacher like it's misbehavior because of the attention deficit piece, when it's really that underlying pure one vocabulary that she doesn't have. So as I talk to teachers and as we work, we have 8,000 words at that tier one level. And so the big question is, where do we start? And so we really have to be in the classroom. We have to know what words the teachers are using in order to, so that student can function the best in the classroom. I've got to start with those prepositions. Yes. And in front of behind, as we know, are going to come after concepts of like in and out and up. And so I may have to even back up to make sure that those basic concepts, those prepositions are in place before I can ever expect her to do in front of, behind, next to. Mm -hmm. But it's really impacting her in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you specifically have um, an evaluation tool, normed or not, that gives you information about what they have and what they don't have and what you need to do? As far as basic concepts, do you have anything to share with us? You might have to help me with this or our listeners. There, I assume the BAME test of basic concepts is still available. <laughs> I love the BAME. I will tell you that I don't. I, okay. I, and I assume that I'm looking it up right now as we talk. I assume that it is still there and available for us. But I will tell you what I do is I get into that classroom when I can. Or if I'm in private practice and I'm not in a classroom, I'm talking to the parents to say, give me an idea of where your student is struggling. And I typically start with those concepts that are impacting them in the classroom. 
And yes, the bait is still available from, we'll put a plug in for Pearson Publishing, and uh, it is still available out there. But I will tell you, um, on page, for any of you that are following along in this pod course, and by chance are ha um, have a handout that goes along with it, what I did on page three is I listed basically all of our categories of basic concepts. And again, it's not an all-inclusive list, but it includes things like colors and spatial concepts, um, basic concepts of quantity, quality, such as open, closed, dirty, clean, shapes, um, weight and volume, location, adjectives for emotions, basic nouns, verbs, pronouns, and then those basic concepts that designate time. And so what I truly do is I think through those categories and figure out from there where I need to go. Um, there is the Montgomery Assessment of Vocabulary Acquisition, the MAVA from Judy Montgomery, and um, it, it will lay out for you tier one and tier two words. What it does, though, is that it and there's an online um, evaluation tool that you can plug those results into, and it tells you where, what, if they're tier one's missing, tier two's missing. The problem is, is that it bases it on the standard score, of course. So if you have a student who has a standard score of 70 or 75, it's going to give us information based on that level, not necessarily what you would expect for a child if their standard score was at 100 in that solid average range. So we do have several ways to go and look at that. Like I said, yes, the theme is still there from Pearson Publishing. So um, I've, I've used it before. It's just been a while. I've listed some of those as I just talked about. Uh, and then, like I said, the MAVA, the Montgomery um, vocabulary, the MAVA is out there as well. Right. Let me just interject. Um, because I know the BAME has been around a while, and I really like the BAME. <laughs> um, but is it spelled B-O-E-H-M or something like that? It's an odd spelling. Yes, it is. It is. You are absolutely correct. B-O-E, and let me try that again, B-O-E-H-M, Test of Basic Concepts. And it looks like the third edition is out, and it is for ages, uh, looks like grade levels, kindergarten through second grade. Okay. Is it still administered or, or I guess that you can do it individually, but you can do it to like um, classroom, you know, full of kids or lots of kids at once. Um, but I know I, you know, a, f a few years ago, classroom teachers were actually using it, um, which I thought was a good thing. Uh, you know, because a lot of times classroom teachers just assume, like you were saying before, they just right. think that everybody has the concepts. And uh, they just assume that it's a willful behavioral issue. Okay, I'm sorry, I kind of sidelined you there, Margot. But you know what? No problem at all. And as I look at this information on the name, it looks like the last publication date was 2001. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any updates coming on that as well. And I'm sure our listeners have other tests that they like to use uh, while looking for those basic concepts for our younger students, which are those tier one words. Yes. Um, years ago, I put together a one page basic concepts and it was just something that I put together, um, not needing pictures or manipulatives or anything. And it's like, what is under your eyes? And it's all in regards to body parts. And I do have that, I believe, on my website. <laughs> Give a little plug here, but sharposhark.com. Um, and I think it's under free stuff. But I used it for years and it was very helpful. I love your list here on page three. 
I like those concepts and the way that you have them laid out. Um, but that's what we need because, and that's what the kids need. Just those, that nice, solid information. Um, okay, so you're back to Susie. And um, do you want to share with us kind of how you handled that with the teacher? Or um, was she one of your kids that you had in, in your, on your caseload? What happened? She was. And so remember I said Susie's IQ was about 55 to 60. And here's what we know about the number of exposures that students need to learn a new word. And there was uh, the original study, I love this, because the original study was done in 1931 by Gates, and it was repeated by McCormick in 1999. And I recently did an internet search to see if I could find uh, any other updated research past McCormick in 1999, but it looks like that's still our most current research. And it's the number of exposures that students need to learn a new word. And to me, for all of us as speech-language pathologists, I feel that this is important information to know because what it means is that based on the IQ levels of students that we're serving, that if they are still in a regular classroom um, or even resource classroom or a functional academics program where they still are studying vocabulary and also have spelling words they really should know the meaning of, we can't keep up with all the vocabulary in the classroom. Um, it is amazing to me that when I go over spelling words with students, it is not unusual for my students to not know 80% of their spelling words. And I'm kind of digressing or, or moving ahead to tier two. But let me give you an idea of the number of exposures. So first, we're going to start with children that we don't get to see very often. And let's look at an IQ that is significantly above average of 120 to 129. Those students still need 20 exposures to a, a word to make it their own. 20? 20 to zero. So if we go to an average IQ of 90 to 109, 35 exposures. Let's go down to a moderate cognitive impairment, which for their research was considered 60 to 69, 55 exposures. Oh, my. Now you're talking about owning it. <laughs> <laughs> owning it. Being able to learn it, not memorizing it for the test, but truly learning it where they can actually understand it and be able to use it themselves. Okay. Okay. And then exposures, what do you mean by that? Um, the number of times they need to come encounter with that word. So, for example, for Susie, let's go back to Susie. In front of, it's going to take Susie 55 to maybe 60 exposures to that word for her to understand it and be able to use it. Wow. Okay. And she's going to need somebody to, to say, stand in front of Michael. And here's where I mean, you know, here's in front where she takes her and puts her in front or, or indicates. Specifically moves her. Yep. Yep. Points. Yep. You are right. So the, the, the big piece of that is, is helping teachers understand it. It may be halfway through the school year before Susie's ready to follow those directions of in front of behind. And again, if Susie doesn't have those first level basic concepts of in, out, on, we've got to start there first because we can't expect her to understand those harder concepts if I don't have the basic ones in front of that 
for her to understand as well. Yeah. You know, something else just kind of occurred to me. I wonder if it has something to do with context. You know, like Susie's standing in line. She's distracted by the other kids. Maybe she's in the lunch line and she's hungry. Maybe she's concerned about something that happened in class or something that somebody said. And so there is some distraction there. Most of your average, regular, cognitively aware kids are going to come to attention and, oh, okay, Mrs. Jones, I'll get in front. But I'm thinking that, you know, you've got so many variables there with a child that has a 55 IQ that there's going to be a lot of concrete examples and repetition that's needed. Is that true? That is true. Um, in, in my example with Susie, you also have a young lady with attention deficit disorder, which is going to impact even more. So, I mean, even though let, let's move up and let's go to a mild cognitive impairment, which for their research was considered 70 to 79, they still need 45 exposures. And so even 45, and if we move up to 80 to 89 IQ, they need 40 exposures. So, I mean, the difference between that 80 down to 60 is really just 15 more exposures to the words. So, I mean, I think we have a role, you know, regardless whether we're in the school, we're in private practice, or wherever we are working with children, we've got to understand that significant impact of that tier one vocabulary on that academic success, and that's where it has to start. And when we look at those 8,000 words, that's how we have to decide where's the beginning. Yes, that's a good beginning. Um, I'm thinking, too, with that teacher. And something that I would say to teachers, never assume the child understands. Never assume that. And, you know, like with Susie, she's going to need really concrete examples. And then, as you said, lots of them, lots of repetition. And lots of patience from her teacher. Right. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and that requires time and effort. <laughs> and a lot of teachers, bless their hearts, they just don't have, they have neither one of those. All right. So part of our job is to sort of intercede and to explain, okay, what's going on. And then, and then obviously our job is to help that child to understand those basic concepts. Okay. Now, do you have an example of a child that's maybe 90, maybe a little bit higher level cognition and maybe understands those very basic concepts is, and is, is in the process of going from tier one to tier two? Tell me more about that. Tell me more about those kids because I know a lot of us has, have those that level of child. Wonderful. I sure will. And again, even when we're looking at that level, uh, we still know that they need at least 35 exposures. Those exposures can come pretty easily. And as we move into tier two, uh, especially as these students are getting older, there's some nice visual graphic strategies such as the Freyer model that we can pull in. And we'll talk about that both from a storage perspective and a retrieval perspective that we're able to pull in for those students. And it's amazing how just by doing a vocabulary analysis, we can provide that student with 10, 15, 20 exposures all at the same time by just analyzing those words. And so that's just a beautiful segue as we start looking at um, after those basic concepts are laid, that foundation is laid where we can go with tier two words. Um, you know, and I want to I want to digress for just a second before we move there because we didn't talk about those Dolch and Fry words. 
And what I would say, I tried to work on those before, Char, and have had little success because we know those are words that are highly, they're high frequency words. So we hear them all the time. Um, children will learn to recognize them in their reading, but they have little meaning. What does R, A-R-E mean? What does it does mean? What does was mean? What does were mean? So those words have no meaning for our students. And it's, it's really funny because once you get up in the Dolce & Fry words and you start getting into like yellow and little, which are two syllable words, we find that the children can see those, they recognize them right away, but we still don't have some of the words from that very first list. And so what I would suggest and encourage uh, therapists to do is to really work on those high content words for the students. And these are going to bridge us from tier one to tier two. And so those might be words in the classroom. They might be words that are associated with um, a hobby or a topic that the student really likes and pair the picture with the written word and do some work around that. Then once they have a cache of words there, then add the Dolce and Fry words to start moving those into phrases and sentences. Because by doing that, you've now given those Dolce and Fry words meaning associated around those high content words for the students. And for those of you that have access to the handout, um, this actually, this, this comes from a, from the Downs education curriculum. So downsed.org. And it's referred to as look, match, say. And what I've done is I've actually taken that and applied it to those high content words for that tier one bridging into tier two. And the process to do that is available for you in the handout on six, seven, eight, and the top of page nine. And there are certain Dolce and Fry words that we can use that same type of approach or teach the vocabulary of, such as colors, such as pronouns. And those lend themselves very nicely to be able to set that foundation in tier one to get ready to move to tier two. And for tier two, we have about 7,000 words at that level. So let me give you another example. So let's go, um, let's go with Johnny. And Johnny is in the fourth grade. And the teacher comes out and she said, you know, Johnny is really struggling. And I'm not sure what he's understanding or what he's not. And you, and we decide to go in the classroom and just sit in the back and listen to the vocabulary that the teacher is using. And the teacher is using words like explain, describe, compare, contrast, analyze, explain. And those are tier two words. And if our students don't have those words, they can't participate in class. They can't understand the context in which the teacher um, is discussing or lecturing. Those are going to be the same words that they see on worksheets and on tests. So as we look at those 7,000 words at tier two, that's where we have to start. 
I had a really great experience where um, I was at a school for children with language for learning disabilities. And I went into the middle school classroom and I did just that. I sat in the back of the classroom and the most awesome thing happened. What I asked the teacher was, I said, I wrote down the words and after class, I went to her and I said, could I have just five minutes of your class, whatever day is convenient for you? because I'd like to go through and see which of these words your students know. And I expanded that out to include some expressions that she was using, some figurative language. And she said, sure. I did that on two different occasions and the most wonderful thing happened after that. She started stopping herself when she used words that she wasn't sure that the students understood. If she used an expression or figurative language that she didn't think they knew, she stopped and explained that. And on the flip side, the students started advocating for themselves and would raise their hand and say, Mrs. Smith, I don't know what that means. Wow. Good. And so really what our goal was, was to find those words, to look at the textbooks, to listen to what the teachers are saying, to find those words that are most important. And that's where we were going to start on those 7,000 words. And the most beautiful thing is that we were able to collaborate with that teacher. And we were both able to identify those words and be able to boost that tier two vocabulary for the students. Yeah, excellent. Very good. We have about 20 minutes left. Where would you like to go? Do you want to give us some specific therapy strategies or what would you like to do? Because you have here in your handout some very specific things, but I love your practicality and I mean, you're extremely knowledgeable and you've worked with kids a lot. Tell us some things to do. I would love to. All right, I would love to. So what we do, let's put tier two and tier three together because some of the strategies we can use are applicable for both. Uh, on page 10 of the handout, I, I am a huge Robert Marzano geek. I will be very honest with you. I am too. And, and <laughs> I can't help but I am. Oh, good. I always joke that at some point, um, Dr. Marzano, if you're listening to this pod course, I would love to have dinner with you at a dinner party <laughs> because I think we could have the most interesting conversation <laughs> because here's what Robert Marzano did for us. Yes. He looked at vocabulary based on tier one, tier two, and tier three. For tier one vocabulary, I'm going to digress for a second. What he did was he gave us a list of those 8,000 words. He looked at modals and relationship markers and prepositions, and he developed a list. And then what he did is he came up with what he called superclusters. So, for example, supercluster 10 is animals. And in all of those 8,000 words, in parentheses behind his list, he put super cluster whatever, which would be a great place to work on these. For tier two and tier three, he went through all of the common core state standards. He pulled out all the tier two and all the tier three words. And then what he also did is he listed for us which standards these words are present. So honestly, it's a wonderful resource as you're trying to figure out what words are important in that classroom. It is a great place to start. If you just go to a search engine and put in tier one vocabulary Marzano, it will pull it up. There are several uh, Department of Education websites that have adopted his work. So sometimes it will lead you to those websites. 
And you will also see MarzanoResearch.com. And all of that information is available there. Excellent. So what Marzano and Pickering did in their book in 2005, which is called Building Academic Vocabulary. This is on page 10 if you have the handout. He laid out basically six steps that should occur as students are learning vocabulary. And I really use this as my basis as I am working through Tier 2 and Tier 3. And there are the first three, he talks about this should occur with every word. And what we know is that dictionary definition is not going to give our students much information because they'll actually copy down words that they have no idea what they mean. Mm-hmm. Right. So we know that the vocabulary word has to be presented to them in a user-friendly manner. What we also know from the research is that students need a linguistic and a non-linguistic representation of the word for them to help make it their own. And as we look at retrieval, that non-linguistic, drawing a picture, watching a video, really helps with that retrieval of that word once it is stored as well. And so his first couple of steps are one, for us to be able to give a user-friendly definition, then to make sure the student understands it, and then thirdly, for them to attach a picture. And this goes right into the way Freyer set up his model for vocabulary analysis as well. And I'll give you an example. I had a young man, fourth grader, and they were reading a book called The White Giraffe. And one of the vocabulary words he had was, um, I just want magnificent. Is that the word? Is it magnificent? Oh, I just went blank with my example. Let me go to Marvel. It's a better example. And his definition for Marvel on his own was to look at something. And so for him, what I had to do was, Thomas, Marvel is like to, wow, look at something. And so what we did is we talked about another word that he had, which was majestic. And we looked at things that were majestic. And we looked at, oh, the Grand Canyon. And we looked at a lion's mane. And we talked about looking at those things that we would marvel at them. Mm-hmm. And so we got to the definition of wow. You know, it's that to wow, look at something. And so I said to him, if you had to draw a picture of something that you would marvel at, what would it be? And he said, the blue ocean in Florida. Wow. So he drew a picture of himself looking at the blue ocean in Florida. So once we make sure that their definition matches up with the picture that they're visualizing, then we want to ask them to, to write a sentence or to tell us a sentence that would go with that. And his sentence was, I marveled at the majestic blue ocean in Florida. Wow. That's <laughs> so, good for you. Really awesome. And so from that, we know that he has made, he's had enough exposures to make that word his own. Now, his mom tells me a very funny story. One of his words was savor. And one night at dinner, he wasn't eating his vegetables. And his mother said, you know, you have to eat your vegetables. And he looked at at her and said, you know that I am savoring those. (laughs) 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 And then the the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth from Marzano is all of those exposures. Build it around games. uh, Build it around 
you know, competitions within using those vocabulary words. Play family feud in the classroom or in therapy with them and also continuing to review those words. That lends itself beautifully to the Freyer model, which I just talked about. Um, because we can do that picture representation and those definitions. I don't know that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but spell that for me. It is F, as in Frank, R-A-Y-E-R, and that's available for you on your handout on page 11. Okay, thank you. And so what you bet. And so what Freyer did was looked at definition. Again, that would be a user-friendly definition. There's a place for your picture. There's a place for a synonym if it's appropriate for that word and an antonym. And I'll be honest with you, Char, I typically provide that synonym and antonym to my students as well because I want to make sure that they're writing down words that they understand and that I think are within their vocabulary. And then there's an oval in the middle, which is where the vocabulary word would go. Um, and I was going to say, oh, and you know, a few other things. Let's talk. We're going to digress into morphology for a second. Okay. Other things that I've added to this Freyer model, I've also added prefix, suffix, and roots so that in order to support that tier two vocabulary and tier three vocabulary, if we can help students understand that Greek, that Latin root, we can help them understand what a prefix or suffix means in that word. We can further their exposures and understanding of those words as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good ideas. I love it. I love the marvel and the magnificent. I will always remember that. <laughs> and the savoring. Yes, I, I have I have pictures of that in my brain. And, and I'm sure that that child will have the pictures too, because there's got to be some level, some kind of an association. And, and do you think that's kind of what's going on is that we want to help the child to generate an association and something that's close to them and personal. You're right. Absolutely. Because we know that, um, I'm going to take it back to Marzano. Um, We know Marzano has my favorite book, totally geek section here. Um, He has a book called Building Background Knowledge. And then he builds that into building background academic knowledge. Okay. And we know that the, the more background information our students know in regard to a topic, um, the more familiar they are, which makes new learning easy. And your, the other piece with that picture representation, the other thing we're doing, if we talk about brain-based learning for a minute, we're integrating the right part of the brain and the left part of the brain and the occipital lobe, and we're pulling all of those pieces together for that student's learning. And it's just a beautiful segue also into then that retrieval piece for our students as well. Yes, retrieval. Yes. So like I said, we're going to use um, kind of that retrieval and word finding interchangeably. Okay. And so we're just going to talk about this quickly. And it's a topic that we can also talk about at another time. Okay. Um, But we know that for students, word retrieval is an expressive language disorder. And what's interesting is that it can be included as part of an overall language disorder, an expressive language disorder. But sometimes we see students who have difficulty with retrieving words, finding those words quickly and being able to pull them back out when they need them. 
Um, it is also highly associated with attention deficit disorder. Ah, uh, okay. And so what I would like to alert our listeners to, if you're evaluating a student and you're looking for retrieval and you see it as a standalone, get back with your school psychologist because this might be a student that we have to look at that attention piece as well. They're highly comorbid. They're not the same thing. But they're highly, according to Dr. German, it is one of those diagnostic groups that you want to make sure that you're looking for retrieval as well. Okay, interesting. So retrieval is expressive language. Okay, is, is, is that the reason why we have some kids that seem to have pretty good vocabulary knowledge, maybe on the expressive one word or, you know, the PBVT or something like that? And, but then you look at their expressive language capabilities, maybe something that you did, uh, you know, on some other, you know, on the self or whatever. Um, and, and their expressive is extremely, extremely low. I mean, where, where does retrieval come in? Is they have it in there. It's stored in there correctly. Is that the, the differentiation? So it's stored. So maybe when they're looking at pictures on the PBVT, it's there. But when they have to express it, they're not able to retrieve it. Got it. So let's see, let's talk about the PPVT and the EBT or the EOW um, or the ROW. So the receptive one word picture vocabulary test. Um, we have one test in our field to be able to truly assess word retrieval or word finding. And that's the test of word finding three by Dr. Diane Coleman. It's the only one we have. But if you look in the manual for the PPBT and the EBT, and then the EOW and the ROW, it will say in both manuals that a statistically significant difference between receptive and expressive vocabulary scores, with receptive being statistically higher than expressive, could be indicative of a word retrieval disorder. Oh, it does. So what you will typically see is you will see that gap, even just in vocabulary, between the receptive and expressive. So what I ask therapists to do if they don't have access to the test of word finding three is to be familiar with Dr. German's patterns of error. So pattern one is what she considers a slip of the tongue error. And this is a semantic error. This means I use a word that's close, but maybe not the right word. I may say baseball instead of football. I may say lettuce instead of celery. Pattern two is a tip of the tongue error, and that is a block error. And that means that it takes a student greater than four seconds to be able to retrieve that word. Error pattern three is a twist of the tongue error, which is a phonological error, which means they might recall one of the segments or two of the segments of the word, but not the whole one. A student may say octopus for octagon. I have students that have said bolsoners for binoculars. So it's different than a phonemic discrimination error, and it's truly that retrieval piece. So when I ask students or, or teachers and, and actually speech language pathologists or psychologists to do is when they score the expressive to make sure they're documenting those patterns that they're seeing. That way, when you go back to work with the student, you know which error pattern is present so that you can develop strategies specifically to address those. Okay, great. And where do I find them? Did you say Gorman or how do I find those patterns? Where are they? Dr. 
Cyan Gurman, G-E-R-M-A-N. She has a website, which is uh, www.wordfinding.com. Okay. You can also go to Asha's website and just put in Dr. German's name and put in word retrieval. It will pull up a couple of um, convention handouts from her presentations that talk about dual vocabulary focus, which is that storage and that retrieval. Perfect. I love it. Oh, Margo, you never fail to amaze me. I have one last question and I, you know, I probably should have prepped you on this, but this is, this is an easy one for you. Do you have a therapy child that stands out in your mind and maybe something kind of funny that happened during a therapy session? Oh, sure. I have so many. Um, And I just want to preface this by saying, and I'm going to tell you a funny one uh, for a young man on the autism spectrum. Um, So we're we're going to move out of semantics and talk pragmatics here for a minute. But um, for the young therapist listening to this pod course, what I say to you is keep a journal because your students will say the funniest things. And you will think as you move through your career, you will remember those funny things but you don't always. And so keep a journal. So regardless where you are in your professional journey, that's my biggest advice to give to you. Okay, here's my story to close for today. So uh, the school that I told you about where I went into the English language arts class and we wrote down the words. One day I was walking by in the hallway and the social studies teacher came out and said, Mrs. Porter, can you come in our classroom for a minute? Sammy has the most exciting news to tell you. And Sammy's in the front of the class and she is just so excited. And she tells a story that her family received a phone call and they were getting ready. They got the word that they, the child that they were going to adopt was ready to be adopted. And so her family would be traveling to Ethiopia to pick up the student. And another one of our students um, was in the back, a young man on the autism spectrum, and he was pacing in front of the maps. And he turned around and the teach social studies teacher said, does anyone have any questions? And when John turned around, John's question was, isn't there feast and famine in Ethiopia? <laughs> What a way to ruin such a great moment. The social studies teacher handled it nicely and said, I am sure they have taken all of that into consideration. So what I would like to finish with is that vocabulary semantics, as we talk about, is important in every classroom and every place that the student is. It is so important to their daily lives. It doesn't matter whether it's the English language arts class, the social studies class, the math class, if it's preschool or high school. A student's ability to understand and use vocabulary, semantics, plays such a key role into their academic success. Yes. Excellent. Wow. Well, I am just intrigued with all of these great ideas and suggestions and so on. But uh, I do marvel. I marvel at you and what you know and how you are just able to share it so magnificently with us. Thank you so much, Margo. Will you come back and do this again? Share more of your great information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I would absolutely love 
My pleasure, Shar. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.